First uh, John two, very interesting chapter. Uh, it has um, topics that we'll dig into, but I guarantee I won't explain sufficiently for you. Uh, hot topics like the last days, the Antichrist. Um, Probably is not Trump, uh, but look, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it, and we'll focus on what the uh, you know what John is trying to tell us about it. So we'll, we'll pick up where we left off last week. If you're with us, we talked about you know one of John's aims is to help the church uh, differentiate between sound doctrine and false doctrine. Right. For, even for them, uh, in the early days of Christianity, they were faced with you know distortions and perversions of truth already creeping in, and of course that's a very sobering warning for us thousands of years later. Yeah. Right? If they had a hard time with it, how much more so us? Uh, and so that's one of the big aims of First John. And then the text that we looked at last week, John put kind of two tests that we can apply to ourselves and, and, and to you know, others uh, to help us to navigate that, that complex uh, situation. And that was the test of love. Loving one another, that's a huge part of Christianity. That is a fundamental truth. If you can't figure out how to have relationships uh, with people that are different than you, but united in Christ, then you're probably not following Christ. Uh, And the second one being the test of obedience, uh, in that our lives are meant to progressively more and more resemble that of Jesus. If we claim to follow him, if we take his name on as our name, uh, we should look like him. Our lives should look like his life looked like. Uh, and, and here at the end of chapter 2, it in some ways is a continuation of what we talked about last week. Uh, you know, in, in you know, maybe looking at the overarching banner of a test of perseverance. Standing in the test of time as we, as we hold to the truth. Uh, so let's read this together and then we'll look at a few points from it. Amen? So First John chapter 2, starting there in verse 18. John writes, he says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. And For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. We do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is a liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son, no one who denies. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Let's have a prayer and we'll look at a few points here. 
Uh, Father, we, uh, we thank you that we can gather, that we can lift our voices and sing to you, God, and, and you know, pause our lives in many ways uh, to reflect on you, God. And we pray, God, that you help us, God, you know, here you know, for a brief moment to, to, to step back and, and consider that eternal life awaits us, God. That the race we are running, God, has an ultimate goal, and that is eternal life with you, God. But in this life, here and now, we will have many troubles, God. We pray you help us, God. Help us to be a people equipped, uh, prepared, on guard, God, for the, the many challenges we will face, God. And help us to be a people that remain in you, God. Help us, God. Help us to help one another. Help us to have hearts and minds open to your word, God. Help us to, to be a people that keep in step with your spirit, God. Uh, and, and to ultimately be, you know, as John just wrote there, God, unashamed at your coming, God. Help us in all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, so let's look at a few things. Like I said, look, some of these topics we're not going to get as in-depth as we perhaps would like, uh, but attention span and time uh, of rentals prevent sometimes, right? <coughs> this is inevitably a question I get asked once a month, Right? Is it the last hour? Is it the end, right? When coronavirus spread throughout the world, everyone thought, this is it. This is the end. Uh, you know, did John think that? Who won't vote? Right. But you do read the New Testament, and it is very easy to think that they all, you know, the apostles and even Jesus you know, had this viewpoint that, that, that the second, second coming of Christ was imminent, yeah. right? Uh, there is, you know, reasons for thinking that, but we also have to understand that, that the biblical writers, the apostles and Jesus as well, you know, they, they viewed the last days as starting when Jesus is first coming. Yeah. So they used last days, and it's not that they were disappointed when they all began to die out, they looked at the grand time and plan of God and understood that the coming of his son was ushering in the beginning of the end. Yeah. Right? And the end end will occur when Jesus returns a second time. Yeah. Right? Uh, and, and we are meant to live in anticipation of that. Right? Uh, but inevitably, every generation thinks, whatever cataclysmic event happens in their generation, that it is a sign that it is the end. Of course, the irony is that Jesus is very clear that no one actually knows the date, so speculation is pretty much pointless to do. But nonetheless, every generation seems to do it, right? And, you know, I mean, we, we do get caught up in it, right? Uh, but I think generally the safe perspective that we can all have is that every day we're closer to that day. Yes. So are we in the last days? Well, yes, more so than yesterday, right? That we are meant to live in anticipation of it, right? And, and, and in some sense, and I think, one of you know John's points here is on edge in anticipation of that coming. On edge of that, you know. For those of you who have kids, know this experience, right? Uh, I, you know, my kids are in here, so but oh well, they're going to learn the tricks of my trade here. <laughs> As a parent, I, I this is, look, you're going to judge me when I say this, but nonetheless, I'll say it. Right? One of the things I love is is you know, walking with a firm step towards my kids' rooms and inevitably seeing them begin to scurry and do whatever they were supposed to be doing, right? It's like today as we're getting ready for church, you know, Michelle had left early and 
Uh, I'm, you know, I heard her as she left the door tell Allie, hey, Allie, make sure you put your shoes on. Don't wait till dad says time to go and then put your shoes on. And nonetheless, as I'm walking down the hallway, I can see Allie beginning to scramble, try to find her shoes uh, to get her shoes on. You know, and this, that, 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 that on edge feeling when you see it's coming. <laughs> right? That's kind of how John, I think that's how John wants us to see it. Right? That, that man, God's coming back. And, and at that moment, it's all done, right? There's no switching teams at that point, okay? It's all set, sheep and goats. And we're meant to live on edge as it becomes near every day. Um, you know, the, the other hot topic that, that's there in verse 18 is that of the Antichrist, right? The Antichrist. This, there on the screen, it's not super big, right? Uh, but is a, a very famous uh, painting, uh, or, or it's a fresco in a Catholic church somewhere in Italy, um, you know, in it, in it, first glance, it looks mo- mo- uh, mostly like the traditional depictions of Jesus. But the more you look at it clearly, you see, you know, there's a Satan-like figure whispering uh, into his ear. And if you look in even more detail, if you blow it up on your computer when you get home, after you download it from Wikipedia, you can see in the background there's a bunch of hideous stuff happening, right? Uh, but, but, you know, and the title of it, I think, is uh, The Sermon of the Antichrist and His Deeds which is kind of a dead giveaway as well, but it's not Jesus. <laughs> you know, but but this, this depiction is one that has always fascinated mankind. And John is, you know, one of the, you know, in the New Testament, one of the, the clearest writers about the Antichrist. Right? He's not the only one who mentions it. Mark 13, Jesus talks about and warns about false prophets are going to come, false messiahs are going to come. Um, you know, Paul, we'll read here in a second, we'll talk about the coming of the lawless one. Uh, you know, but both Paul and Jesus and also John, they do paint this picture of, you know, at the end end, there will arise a figure promoting lawlessness. So throwing off of all restraint, throwing off of truth, perhaps. Who will, you know, in many ways embody a, a anti-Jesus posture. Right. But, but all those writers, you know, Paul, John. And also Jesus, though Jesus is not a writer, right? But all, all those uh, figures also point out that, look, the spirit of that is already widely at work. And so, again, m- many times we can become fascinated with the Antichrist or the lawless one. But we do need to step back and heed the warning that even John is making here. And we'll later on when we look at 2 John, like chapter, there is no chapters, but verse 7 of 2 John, where he talks about the, 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 the Antichrist in, in, you know, additional detail, is the idea that that, that whole um, paradigm of the lawless one, of the Antichrist, is already well and truly at work. John thought that, Paul thought that, Jesus warned of that. Right? So yes, there are figures that will arise. And, and the Bible is very, very firm on, hey, you're going to need to be prepared. Because many will be deceived by that. Many won't cling to the truth in that time. But you also can't sit back and think, well, that's not really the time. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> that's already begun. That, that mentality, that perspective is already pervasive in the world. And so you think what John here is doing at the, you know, the beginning of the text we're looking at, he's, he's putting two things ahead of us that are scary concepts. Man, the end, the end is coming. The judge is returning. And man, a figure that, that can very easily deceive the vast majority of mankind is going to arise and in many ways is already at work. Yeah. 
And so John is trying to put his hearers and, man, us by extension on edge a bit. Hey, don't be casual here. Don't just cruise through your Christian life on autopilot. Don't just believe the lie that turning up and sitting for an hour, hour and a half, one day a week is, is going to make sure that you will be unashamed on that day. Take great care. As Hebrews will warn us, be, be very sure that you don't drift away. You don't get deceived. You know, and the question I think that we have after these two verses is, well, how do we not? How do we not fall into this trap? How do we not get deceived? How do we not get led away? How can we be ready for that day when it arrives? Let's look at a few points here. You know, John's very clear. He gives us, you know, basically three three. Obvious things, hopefully, that you picked up as you read this text is the need to remain in fellowship, to remain in truth, and to remain in righteousness. All right? To remain in fellowship, to remain in truth, remain in righteousness. Many commentators point out the reality that, that this section we've just read and a bit of the, the, the one we read last week has a lot of, of overlapping of material of Jesus' uh, teaching on the vine and the branches. You can read that in John 15. Uh, on your own time, right? But let's look at these ideas, right? Remain in fellowship, remain in truth, and remain in righteousness. You know, verse 19 there, chapter 2, we see very clearly John making this point, right? He talks about, you know, again, these, you know, people coming in the spirit or pattern of the Antichrist had perhaps come out of the fellowship of those in John's churches. The greatest danger to Christianity is always not out there. It's always in here. It's always been true. All right. The greatest dangers we face are not outside, they're inside. So John talks about that. that They had went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. But if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Uh, And you, you see what John's doing there. Simply staying connected within the body is a vital thing. For keeping you on the right track. All of us, for the most part, when you, when you study the Bible and you, and you get baptized, uh, one of the things we talk about right before you get baptized or right after you get baptized uh, is the model there at the end of Acts 2 of the early church. Right? The 3,000 people who get baptized, what did they do? They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Because everyone, when they first start out, are nervous about not finishing. Many people even delay getting baptized because they're scared they won't be able to stay faithful. But one of the most basic ways to stay faithful is simply stay. It sounds painfully obvious, but it does seem to be missed by many. (laughs) Just got to stay. There's something about community that's vital. There's something about the, 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 the surrendering of the individual and choosing to be part of a community that is vital to stay faithful. I coach Jake's uh, soccer team, uh, and it's under eights, but it's mainly like under sevens and under sixes, and it's frustrating, right? Because I'm way too competitive, and they're not that competitive. They're actually, most of them are there for the lollies, you know? But (laughs) even at that age, it's it's very interesting to, (laughs) to see team dynamics, and, and pride destroying unity and community, right? Not in Jake, of course, you know, but in other kids. 
you know, probably in Jacob Times, and for sure in the coach, me, you know, but, but there's something about community and a team that is so good for pride. That is so good for pride. Because healthy dynamics in a community or a team in relationships requires humility. Pride will always push us away from others. It will repel us away from others, right? People will, will naturally withdraw away from pride because pride by its very nature produces conflicts and quarrels and a vast majority of us don't like living in constant conflict and quarrels and so we'll naturally you know, withdraw away. And so when you find yourself being pulled perhaps or pushed perhaps or drifting to the outsides of the fellowship and your relationships becoming strained, it's good to step back and look, maybe there's pride. You know, Colossians 2, when Paul writes about, you know, those who get idle notions and become puffed up in their thinking, they, they become uh, disconnected from the body. Core reason, of course, being pride. But relationships force us to operate within the realm of humility. Right? And the second, second I think, think that, 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 that makes fellowship so important for, for not just helping us become part of the body of Christ, but remain part of the body of Christ is the cryptic architectural plan that's up there on the screen that most of you have been thinking about rather than what I was just talking about. You know? <laughs> and in hindsight, I should have started with that, right? You know, but, but on there is, is historically um, how they would lay out churches. Churches were always, again, historically, not so much anymore, but architecturally designed and built so that you would enter from the west and then be facing towards the east. And so the idea was that, that, that simply coming into church, the physical building of a church, would orient you towards God. Um, you know, Tertullian, who was a, a famous Christian that lived in the second century, uh, he, he went to as far, he was, he, one of his most famous writings is that of Tertullian against heresies. And he's writing against some of the, you know, the critiques and the false doctrines of his day. Uh, and one of the things he had to answer for is that in the second century, many people thought Christians worshipped the sun because a lot of the, the, the early church would actually pray facing east, the rising sun, right? But of course, it wasn't about the sun. It was about the sun, right, in, in, in Jerusalem. And so they would face east as they pray. But the, the whole idea architecturally and, and historically in terms of prayer was this idea that, that, that church literally orients you towards Jesus. The organization itself turns you that direction. As an individual, we drift. As an individual in our pride, we get lost in our own thinking, our own ideas. But the very idea of an organization is that it is harder, in some sense, to steer in the wrong direction because it's not just one, it's many. And it's a greater strength in that regard. Right? If it's built on, the, on truth, right? An organization not built on truth is very difficult than to turn, right? For those who think, let me just go into some church and change their thinking if they're incorrect. That's very challenging. But, but the very nature of these things tells us that, look, hey, fellowship, church, community, that organization. For many of us, we, we became oriented towards God as we entered it. And we can remain oriented toward God if we stay part of it. But man, it's not easy. Because we all have pride. And we all think more highly of ourselves than we should. We all end up in conflict at times and, and fray relationships and we can drift, but we gotta, we gotta stay the course. I read a good book a couple years ago uh, called The Way of the Dragon or the Way of the Lamb. 
which is a great title, but I, don't, I wouldn't say the book lived up to it, right? But nonetheless, there's a good quote in it. It talks about the road less traveled is less traveled for a reason. Our feet are trained to find paths of self-achievement and self-glorification. We use our vocations to build significance. We use our relationships to get ahead. We spend our money and our time trying to gain more power because we are prone to waywardness, prone to walk the path of pride, self-sufficiency, and power. We need the church to ground us in Christ and his way. You know, it's it's an accurate synopsis of the world we live in. The world we live in chases after things that the church doesn't value. And left to ourselves, we will follow the pattern of the world that we came out of. But together, with accountability. The people who love you more than they love you loving them. Does that make sense? People who love you enough to say something that offends you. That's a vital part of staying the course. People who are willing to tell you hard truth. That stings. That cuts. But that ultimately helps you to stay on that narrow path. If we're going to stay faithful to the last, last day, we want to endure the, the deceptions that come with the Antichrist, man, we need one another. Amen? Amen? Secondly, and a little bit quicker, I promise, we have to remain in truth. We have to remain in truth. And this is a huge theme of the Gospel of John. We've already touched on it to some degree. We will look at it more depthly as we go, just as we will about love. But, you know, John is... is he understands very clearly that a vast majority of the battleground we face as Christians revolves around the area of truth. And is there, is there truth? Is there absolute truth? Right? Again, one of the primary false doctrines they were faced with was that of Gnosticism, and it was this idea that, that there was additional revelation out there, additional truth to be discovered, and only the special elite uh, had that increased knowledge, and that increased knowledge was so special that if you had that knowledge, it didn't matter how you lived your life or whether you loved anyone else because you had that special knowledge, right? That's Gnosticism, right? And, you know, there's very clear uh, examples of that same philosophy in our world today, right? Where it doesn't matter how I live, all that matters is what I believe. John challenges that notion pretty heavily, you make these claims that you are these things and your life doesn't match it? Well, that doesn't gel. That doesn't, that doesn't fly. You know, but John knew that there was this battle and if the church lost it, it would lose what she was meant to be and would cease to be effective. You know, but it's a challenging thing. Because there is lies, as he talks about there in verse 22. Right? And further down, there, there, you know, verse 27, he, he talks about that, that, that what they have in terms of the gift of the Holy Spirit and what they have heard is real. It's not counterfeit. And really, I mean, show of hands, who thinks the top 50 is counterfeit? Just two? Are they both the same? Is it a trick question? No, they're not the same. They're not the same. Which one's real? Don't know, right? There's a period apparently in the East Coast where nine out of 10 50s were counterfeit. So, 
if you, if you use cash still, you might want to figure this out or, you know, you're going to be a bit poor. <laughs> the bottom one? Anyone with Miriam? Michelle? No, no, not sure. They're both counterfeit. <laughs> Test how much you trust me. Is this a... S- how sinister is Sam? <laughs> He's very sinister. You've never seen a counterfeit, Michelle. Trevor <laughs> <laughs> says he needs both 50s, then he'll decide. All right, here we go. No, no. I can't actually remember which one's counterfeit. <laughs> no, I think it's the bottom, but I didn't write it in my notes. Sorry. But, but I mean, counterfeit is hard. What does Paul say? Paul says Satan masquerades as an angel of light. It's a scary, it's a scary concept. Can we distinguish from that which is false and that which is true? Can we differentiate? Probably heard the illustration with counterfeits, right? They train people to identify counterfeits by getting them to study the original. Can't just be looking at the false ones and then, you know, use that to figure out which one's the real one. Your only hope for understanding what is counterfeit is knowing the original. Knowing it inside and out. Knowing all the intricacies of it. Again, one of the other scary passages in the New Testament that's a lot like one we're looking at here in terms of, you know, the Antichrist and lies and Man, it's 2 Thessalonians 2, where Paul talks about the coming of the lawless one. And, and, and knowing truth, loving truth, is the antidote that Paul puts forward. And we have to be people of the word. Too often, I think it is just an assumption among us. But how are you going reading? Do you know... God's word, do you, do you have a better handle on that than the latest Netflix series? Which do you memorize more readily? Lyrics to songs or scripture? Which dominates your thinking? Your thoughts or God's thoughts? What do you use to combat your thoughts when they're out of line? Do you use God's word? We're meant to be people of the word. To be a people who, who are constantly meditating on it day and night, who write it on our forehead, bind it on our hands. The idea that you're always thinking about it and you're always thinking about it when you're acting, when you're doing something, integrating it into your life. If we're going to differentiate between what is true and what is false, man, we, we have to know that which is true. And, and that becomes even more critical because the, the world is assaulting truth. I mean, you know, modern relativism pushes back on every angle of truth. And it's not just from the outside world, man, it's within Christianity. A famous, one of the famous theologians, if you even want to call him that when I tell you what he says, you may not think that, and that's probably correct, right? I mean, you know, but this guy named Spong, who, you know, famous writer, very revered, uh, you know, biblical critic in the, in the U.S., you know, about 25 years ago, he, he, he wrote a book, uh, and the title of that book was Why Christianity, Christianity Must Change or Die. 
And, and, and the premise of his, of his book was this idea that, that Christianity clings to archaic truths, specifically around morality, and that Christianity needs to contextualize, which is fancy language for uh, adopt modern values and throw out old biblical values. And his whole premise was, hey, that if Christian churches don't do this, they're going to die. Right? And he was a pretty, you know, widespread, accepted author, uh, you know, part of the Episcopalian church in, in the U.S., which is like Anglican church in, in Australia. Uh, and, and a lot of churches followed his path. Right? And a Canadian group of researchers uh, did a survey and they looked across uh, many, many churches, uh, interviewed 2,000 plus uh, clergy members and, um, you know, I don't know, Catholic term, uh, people. <laughs> It's a Catholic term for it? Clergy and lady. There it is. Right? Uh, you know, 25 years after, after Spong had written that. And what they discovered was counterintuitive. Those churches that modernized, adopted the world's values in order to stay hip, to stay accepting, to be tolerant, to be loving, above truth, died by and large. The segment of Christianity that continued to grow were those who actually held to truth. It's counterintuitive, right? Because we can often think, you know, along marketing terms, right? Become what people want and then more people will come. Right? I mean, that's the premise of marketing, right? Find out what people want and give it to them, right? And so let's find out what people want from Christianity and it's self-help. Uh, and power to do whatever they want to do. Well, if church gives that to them, then church will grow. But the, that's actually false. Churches that grow are those who hold to truth, who don't contextualize morality. Because in reality, if you study history, it's not like modern people are more sinful than historical people. They're the same. Mankind doesn't really change. We talked about that last week with don't love the world because everything in the world, right? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride, right? Greed, lust in terms of immorality, and pride. Um, I think John has us pegged. That is still the world we live in. And we can't change truth, man. We've got to hold to truth. But there are many quasi-Christian ideas that, man, just blur all these lines. And we can be tempted to buy into it to think it is actually more loving, but it's, it's not. It's buying into a lie that who knows who's behind it. Who knows? You know, I referenced it earlier. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 to 10. And at the end of that, that section, as Paul is talking about the coming of the lawless one, he, he talks about how he will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceive those who are perishing. Look at this last sentence. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. It's a scary passage when you think about it. I would say the vast majority of you in this room know Scripture better than the vast majority of people who claim to be Christian. And that's good. Do we love it, though? Do we love the truth? Again, when you think about counterfeit, 
Right? People counterfeit famous paintings. Well, who, who do they bring in to distinguish? Someone who loves Monet and knows everything that Monet has ever painted and knows the intricacies, the intricacies and the details of everything. Someone who is passionate about it is attentive to detail. Is, is that how you are with the Word of God? Do you have a passion for it? Or is your love grown cold? Do you crave it like you did at first? But do you remember that? You remember when you first, you know, realized, man, my life is rubbish and empty. Let me read the Bible. And you began to read it. And you found yourself reading it at night before you went to bed and unable to put it down. And you found yourself excited to get up early and read it. You had lunch, you had a break during the middle of the day, your lunch break, man, you would read the word. When you would see someone else in church, you were excited to talk to them about what you had read or what you had learned. When's the last time you did that? How long has it been? I get lots of recommendations of Netflix shows to watch. You know, a lot of people asking me, you seen this, you know? Hey, have you read this? You thought about this passage. Now, what does this mean for our lives? Again, we can know it, but we must love it. It must burn in your heart as the prophet talks about. Fire within your bones. If we're going to stand the test of time, if we're going to persevere, you can't have a casual relationship with the Word of God. We must be people who love it. Third and lastly, and even more brief, I promise, you must remain in righteousness. You know, and by righteousness there, I don't, I don't mean the legal standing of being declared righteous, which happens when at the waters of baptism, you, you stand there and you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, and you're immersed in water and you're born again, your sins are forgiven and you are justified. You're made righteous in God's sight. I'm not talking about that. That's not dependent on your works. That's dependent on your faith. But there is this concept of you have been made righteous. You and me, we were all a bunch of pigs that wallowed in the mud. And we've been washed. We've been cleansed. Now stay clean. (laughs) Don't become polluted by the world. Remain in him and keep your heart from, from evil. Because we know Hebrews 3, right? A sinful, unbelieving heart, what does it do? It turns. It turns away from the living God. We become hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Our faith begins to diminish. And if we want to remain in Him, we, we've got to remain in righteousness. You know, 2 Peter, which again is, is very similar to 2 Thessalonians 2, which is very similar to 1 John 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, he says, talking about false prophets, false, you know, antichrist, he says, they promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever is master. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are getting entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turned their backs on the sacred command that was passed on them. Of them the Proverbs are true, a dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. And John is pushing us here, guys. 
continue in him. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed. How often do you think about that idea? His appearance. Right? It's, it's, hard. it's a hard image to search for. Right? They all look like cartoons. I don't know. But it's an interesting thing to think about. And I've talked about this before. I don't know. I don't know if you guys have thought about it since last time I talked about it, but man, how much do you think about what that moment will be like? What do you want to be caught doing? I've made very clear, my, I would like to be caught like baptizing somebody, right? I mean, when the master returns, right? When the king returns, if you're going to be caught doing something, like pulling somebody just up out of the water, that'd be a good thing <laughs> to be caught doing, Right? Or, you know, like, you know, just getting off your knees, having just prayed. That's be a good thing to be caught doing, right? I mean, really. Like, you know, I've just finished praying for your kingdom to come. Oh, there it is. That would be nice. But is that what you're going to be caught doing? Because <laughs> a lot of people are going to be caught doing a lot of other things. Scrolling. You ever, you ever do that? You ever sit in public and just watch people? Yeah. Like 95% of people, what are they doing? Head down, worshiping the screen. <coughs> Which is deeper, right? It's not about the screen. It's about entertainment. It's probably deeper than just entertainment. It's about distraction. Why do they need to be distracted? Or why do we need to be distracted? If we're not content in ourselves, why are we not content in ourselves? Well, because we're not as connected to our creator as we should be. We begin to try to look for other ways to feel good about or not think about or feel about ourselves. And so we end up going down this dark path. Think about that day when he returns. Is, is your heart going to be full of confidence or shame? Are you going to be what he is, righteous? Does your life reflect him? You even got to strive to that. Yes, you're never going to attain it. Yes, that's a challenge. <laughs> Understand that. Perfection is a goal, and yes, we're not going to get there till the day he does return. But man, I want to be caught in pursuit of that goal. Rather than the opposite direction. I don't want to take the washing that I received on December 10th, 2001. When I was born again, I don't want to take that washing and go back to that sinful, empty life. I want to remain like a vine in the branch or a branch in the vine. And the longer I'm there, the more his lifeblood pumps through. And the more you produce the fruit that's coming from him. But our task is to remain. It is the last days, guys. You're 35 minutes closer than when we started. If it happened tonight, would you be the fool of Luke 12? You're a fool this very night. Your life's going to be demanded for me. And who's going to get what you've stored up? Or are you going to be rich towards God? As Antichrist comes, man, is the Spirit already infiltrated? the world and the minds 
Are, are we a people that love the truth so much that counterfeit forms stand out to us clear today? Not going to be deceived. We've got to work together and stay together to help one another remain true to the confession we made when we said Jesus is Lord. Amen. Let's have a prayer and then we'll take communion together and then we'll stand and sing some songs. Right, let's pray. Uh, Father, we, uh, we do long for that day where you, you know, peel the sky back like a scroll. Father, we know that, that apart from the, the sacrifice your son has made, none of us could have confidence on that day. Father, we know that, that we are a people that, that you know, are your children, all your sons and daughters, you know, only because we've chosen to put our faith in you and to look to you for, for cleansing and washing and declaration of our righteousness, God. But we pray, God, that, that, that for, you know, for those that haven't made that declaration, God, that you stir their hearts. For those of us that have, God, you, you help us to persevere, God, to stick together, to value one another, to, to surrender our pride more and more every day as we learn to live in community and allow that community to, to reorient us more and more on your son, God. And Father, as we grow as a people, God, we, we beg you, help us to be people of the truth. God, we know that the, the spirit that you have given us is that of the spirit of truth. We know, God, that your, your spirit doesn't speak on his own, but he speaks only what he has heard. That your spirit reminds us of your word, God. And we pray, God, that that language is never foreign to us, God, but it is one that we know and breathe day in and day out, God. God, we pray you help us, God, to, to be a people that don't just know it, but love that truth. But to also be a people that integrate that truth into our lives. Help us to not be deceived. Help us not to look at it and see clearly and then go away and do something else. But help us to be a people that take what we hear and put it into practice. And continue to do that, God. And in that perfect law, God, we know we will find freedom and we will be blessed. Father, as we take this bread and the wine, God, help us, God. Help us to reflect on these things. Help us to reflect on the great gift you've given us, God, in your Son. The blood that was spared so that we could be declared righteous, God. And the idea that we take those things and it's you in us, in us and you. And that only on that day when you return will that be brought to completion, Father. And we do long for that day. We ask you to come. To come quickly, God. And help us to be a people that really long for that moment, God, as our life is truly in the age to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.